Hello, Heritage. It's great to be here, and we want to welcome everyone across the network, and we're going to have a good time today. Um, maybe it should be the other way around, and you should be welcoming me. You know, I've been set over at uh, Esperanza Center with Vida Nueva, and uh, it's just a joy to see so many of you, and uh, we, we are enjoying our stay over at, at uh, Esperanza Center, so don't forget, come over and uh, have a visit one day. Well, we have been journeying through the book of Philippians through our series, the What If series. And uh, we have been challenged. I have personally been challenged as I've read this book and this letter time after time as the days go by. And what a challenge. Well, today our challenge has to do with conduct. I know that this was an interesting challenge for me because we hear that uh, it's not a question of doing, but it's a question of being. We hear it so often, but today we want to take a good look at what God wants for us as, as we speak on conduct. But we are in this what if series, and I, I, I want to ask a couple of what if questions. What if we were to live according to God's will? I wonder what would happen. I wonder how our lives would change, what would be different. What if, as we sung earlier, what if we were to trust him with our life? What if we were to trust him wholly, entirely? I wonder what would happen to my life. What would change? What blessings would I get because I trusted him? Well, Paul, in his letter to the Philippians, instructs, the entire church, a group of people in this way. And he does it so that God will be exalted, that God will be lifted up, that Christ would be known throughout the region. And that is exactly what we as Christians need to be doing. We need to, need to be living such a life that is going to bring honor and glory to God. It's going to be lived in such a way that it is worthy of the gospel. Are we living that way, worthy of the gospel? Are we living a life as Christians that we are living worthily? He is worthy, absolutely worthy of all our praise. He's worthy of us living our life in such a way that he will be exalted. Oh, I don't know about you, but I have, I have come this morning to worship God because he is worthy. Amen? Yes, you are awake even at nine. I know that is what we ask God many times in our prayers. We ask him so differently than what maybe he wants for us. We're always asking God in our prayers like I do many times, 
Oh, God, would you take us out of this problem, out of this difficulty? It's too hard for me. Would you give me the answer? Would you make it easy? Paul, in writing this letter, tells the Philippians and makes sure that they know that he himself is going through difficulty. Paul always did that. He suffered much. And at this time, when he's, when he's writing the letter, he is imprisoned. It's not a fun place to be. And so Paul discovers that right in the middle of his difficulties and his problems, he can be filled with joy. And he discovers that in the middle of all of that, there is purpose, a great purpose. And so he tries to communicate this to the Philippian church. What if Christians could live in a way, in such a way that they wanted just for their desires to be fulfilled? Some of you might be saying, yeah, that's what life is all about. That's why I work so hard. I, I want things. I, I have these desires. I want things to go my way. And yet, God speaks to us this morning, and he says, I want you to conduct yourself a different way. I love to try to imagine what things would be like. What if I were to follow God? And Paul tells us in our passage of Scripture today that we can't do that. We can't follow our desires. We must follow what God has for us. A way that is going to satisfy God, not a way that's going to satisfy me, for it is all about God. Well, it brings us to our first fill-in. What if our conduct was exactly what God wanted? Could we do that? Could we behave in such a way that God from above would look down and he, he would smile. Yes, yes, that's what I want. That's the way I want you to live. Well, let's look at our first part of Scripture found over in Philippians 1.27. Paul writes to the Philippians saying, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, worthy of the gospel. It doesn't matter what happens. It doesn't matter what circumstances we're in. It doesn't matter the difficulties. We must live in a manner worthy of the gospel. Does your conduct scream out the gospel of Christ? That's what it should do. And so, we must Conduct ourselves, you must conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And so it says here, Paul telling us, conduct yourselves. I found that conduct is, it's a, it's a verb used here, it's not conduct, but it's conduct. It's a verb, and it means to manage, it means to direct, to organize to orchestrate, 
to administer. It means to handle, to control, to oversee, to supervise. All these things, it also means to behave in a manner. Notice that Paul is writing to the church here and not to an individual. We must see and understand that our conduct as a body, as a group of people, must be synchronized. Well, I, I thought about a, a good illustration for that, and uh, the word synchronized came to me, and I thought of synchronized swimming in the Olympics. Now, you, you know, I, I really like to watch that, and some of you might be saying, you're kidding, you know? I didn't know that you were that type of man, you know, the synchronized swimming. But it, but it makes sense to me. Our conduct must be synchronized. As a team, the church must work together. They must do it as a team. And so that's how our conduct must be. The question is, do we know the other members of the team? Do you know the people that are sitting next to you? Maybe you've never even seen them before, but you happen to be sitting next to them. Well, we, the church, needs to know. We need to know each other. Please try to imagine a synchronized swim team. I've always wondered, how, how do they do it? Well, I discovered three things that they do. One, they've got to be organized. Organized so that they can make it look great. Are we organized? Have we organized ourselves in such a way that we are bringing exaltation to our Savior? That's what God is, is looking for. But the synchronized team, they, they amaze me. How do they do all of that? Well, they're amazing because they do, they are organized. They're amazing because they have a pattern. The church needs to have a pattern. One needs to be doing and helping out so that the pattern will come together. They have a strategy. They have a purpose. And that purpose is to win. And so the question for us is the church winning? Are we using the same strategies? We must come together. And Paul states that the conduct must be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Are we living in that manner? That's our challenge this morning as we each ask ourselves, am I living in that way that it is worthy of the gospel? Well, living out the gospel in a worthy manner is what we are all called to do. And this is where it gets tough. This is where I'm not too crazy about it because it gets tough. Living the Christian life takes guts. It's not easy. And yet, God calls us to do that routine in life, 
to do that routine in the underwater of life where you're not breathing. It takes guts to be a Christian. And it's getting more difficult. In our workplace, it's getting difficult. It takes guts to put that cross on your desk. It takes guts to say things in the workplace. It's not easy. Jesus told the multitudes, if you get slapped, you must then turn the other cheek. I don't like that. I know that that second slap is going to hurt. It doesn't make it any less painful. It hurts. But that's what God calls us to do. And then Jesus talks about it's better to give than to receive. I've always liked to receive more than anything. I don't. Well, now I do, but it took me a long time to get over, you know, I'd like to receive. But God teaches that it's better to give than to receive. I know that's a hard lesson for children to grasp onto, especially during Christmas. You can only think of give me, give me, give me. It's tough. We must learn to give and find the joy in giving. So it takes guts. But it also takes tenacity. You've got to stay there. You've got to stick with it. You can't quit. Many begin their Christian walk and say, that's too hard. And they say, forget it. I'm out of here. It's too painful. I thought accepting Christ into my life was going to be easy. Everything was going to be like an laying on a bed of roses. Sorry, it's not. It's painful. And who loves pain? I don't. Who loves getting slapped on the face and then having to turn the other cheek? I don't. But you've got to stick with it. You can't quit. Yes, you're going to lose a few rounds. We're going to lose a few battles. But the exciting news is that we're going to win the war. At the very end, we will win. There is something better waiting for us in heaven, in eternity. And we'll enjoy that forever and ever. But we will win. So be tenacious. Stick with it. But it also takes patience. I believe it takes patience first with yourself. Some of you are very impatient with yourselves. God is not finished with you yet. He's working in you. He's doing some remodeling. So be patient with yourself. But also be patient with your team member. God is working in him and her as well. God is working on your husband. He's working on your wife. Be patient. Stick with it. Don't run. 
So it takes patience. But the Christian walk also takes love. Lots of love. You have to love the Lord more than yourself. You've got to love Him like nobody's business. Paul says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Last week I was telling the Vida Nueva people, asking them, how would you fill in the blank? For to me, to live is what? It's blank. What would you fill in there? What would others fill in there for you? Some of you would put in, well, for me to live is my house. It's my car. It's my job. It's my family. It's, it's my money. And we fill it with all sorts of things, but never Christ. Oh, that we would be like Paul and we would say, for to me to live is Christ. Christians should love the Lord above anyone or anything. Jesus told the multitudes, if you want to be my disciple, you must hate father, mother. You've got to hate your brothers, sisters. You've got to even hate your own life. And I thought, wow, that's extreme. Somebody came to me last week and asked me, Pastor Ben, what does that exactly mean? What does it mean that we have to hate mom and dad? That's what Scripture says. Now, don't go home and call mom and dad and tell them that you hate them. I'm going to explain to you what that means. It means that we love God so, so much. We still love mom and dad and our family. We love them. But the comparison is so wide. We love him so, so much that in comparison it seems like we hate mom and dad. And we should love him that much that we don't love ourselves in comparison. And so it takes love. Do you have that love? And then Paul goes on to describe in the second part of verse 27. He says, then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit in striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. The second thing that we need to do is that we need to conduct yourselves as one. Now he continues, this is a, still to the group, to the church in, in Philippi. Conduct yourselves as one. Paul is saying that we should stand firm in one spirit. How do we do that? 
Before we knew Christ, we were sinners. Before we knew Christ, we were controlled by sin. We had no choice. We were controlled by our sinful nature. But all that has changed. We are no longer selfish. Something has changed from within. And we must all live in one spirit. Before, we used to be motivated to please ourselves all the time. We couldn't think of others. We only thought of ourselves. The before Christ. I remember the days of my, my youth when I was, actually, when I was a kid. I don't remember how or when it happened. My mother described it as, son, you have an evil spirit within you. When I was about eight, eight years old, uh, I was out of control. I had this anger in me, just as a little kid. and I, It must have come in when I was really, really young. So I don't remember how it happened. But I was so angry all the time. When I was about eight years old, my sister wanted me to do something. I said, no way. And we had words. And as she walked away, disgusted with me, I took an iron. And the spirit took over. And I took a knife threw it at her, wanting to hit her head. That's what I had aimed for. Fortunately, I missed. I did what I wanted. The spirit had risen up in me. But something happened. When I was 15 years old, a man told me about the gospel. I accepted Christ that night. No bells, no whistles, no fireworks. But I went home. Three weeks later, my mother was asking me what I had done. I was always in trouble with my mother. And I said, I haven't done anything. Yes, you have. No, I haven't. She said, yes, you have. I said, why do you ask, mother? Mom said, because you're not the same boy anymore. Something happened. I want to take us to Ezekiel chapter 36, where he says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. He was talking to a whole nation as one. I will do this for the group. So when we are saved, the Holy Spirit moves into us. What a blessing. What a gift that the Holy Spirit himself moves in and this body becomes a temple of the Holy Spirit. And inside, he begins to work. He breaks the power that sin held over our lives. He frees us to obey God. We're now motivated by love rather than by guilt. 
motivated by that Holy Spirit, that awesome power that is now in us. But we struggle from within still with that sin nature. We wonder, well, well, then why do I still struggle with this if, in fact, the Holy Spirit is in us? The Bible calls it the flesh. We still have that flesh to contend with. Over in Romans chapter 8, verse 8, it gives us the key. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. We cannot live in the flesh. If we are in the flesh, we are out of the Spirit. That is why Paul challenges the Christians to live as one in Spirit. We all have to do it together. We all have to be synchronized living in one Spirit. Living with the fruits of the Spirit love, joy, peace. But are we all doing it? It'd be funny to throw us all in the pool and try to do a routine. It would be, I mean, it would almost be impossible to do a, a synchronized swimming routine. And yet that is what God is calling us to do. We cannot have, church, we cannot have some people living over in the flesh, and some other part of the body living in the Spirit. Paul tells us very clearly that we must live one in Spirit, doing it together. And we need to be accountable one to another. We need to be able to say, hey, 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 uh, uh, that's not part of the Spirit. We're part of the team. So live one in spirit. But he also says that we must also strive in one spirit. What does that look like? I believe, uh, strive in one mind, forgive me. We must have the same vision, the same goals. We must be thinking alike. We must have the same desires. But do we? That's having one mind. Are we talking to each other and seeing what each other thinks? Living and striving, battling in one mind. Conducting yourselves as one. It's not an easy thing to do. Having one mind is not an easy thing to do. Yet we must stand firm in one spirit. Are we doing that? Are we standing firm in one spirit? We must live in the spirit together, synchronized, having the same fruits, all of them, not some living one way and others the other. We must live in community. We must contend as one man for the faith. We must fight the battle together. Sometimes we're tired. I know that. Sometimes we get frustrated. We want out. We want off the team. It hurts too much. 
But we have to be ready. We have to be ready to play, get it back into the game. We need you as a team. We need you to be the soldier that you must be in the army of God. God needs you. The church needs you. Then we go to verse 28. Where we see without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Don't you love this passage? I don't like it, especially that last part. Since you are going through this same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Wow. You can all take your black markers and take that off of your Bible. Can't do that. It's in there. We are called to suffer. You will suffer. Therefore, we must embrace our cross of suffering. Just embrace it. I know you don't like it. Who loves the cross? Oh, I love the cross that Jesus carried because that brought salvation to me. But God calls us to the cross of suffering. For we have been granted, you catch that? We have been granted to believe. And then he throws in, and to suffer for Christ's sake. It's a privilege. It's an honor. When we believe and suffer, Christ is glorified. When we believe and suffer, the enemy gets scared and we get saved. We are victorious. Over in Luke chapter 9, verse 23. Then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves take up their cross daily and follow me. Take up their cross. What is your cross? We all have a cross to bear. My cross is not like yours. My difficulties are not your difficulties. Some of you are living with an unsaved spouse. That is your cross. Some of you, your cross is down the hallway in a rebellious child. Some of you have a cross of addiction. Some of you, your cross is a deep, deep secret. And you carry it. I cannot carry your cross. You must carry it yourself. but carry it. I should not compare crosses. I should not complain about my cross. I should not. I will not. For mine is bigger. And I look over at yours and 
Yours is not so big. You look over at mine, and mine is smooth, and yours is rough. We cannot compare crosses. Don't look over at the other. Just carry the cross. Your cross will take you to the same hill of Golgotha, the hill where Jesus died. They nailed his hands and feet on his cross. When you get there, they'll do the same to you. But Jesus doesn't want you to reform your flesh. He wants you to crucify your flesh. He wants you to live in the Spirit, and that's not an easy thing to do. We are very fleshly. We have to take our will and lay it down. We have to take our desires, our opinions, and lay them down. May they be crucified, nailed to our cross. This is tough to do. It takes discipline to stay on that cross. It takes discipline when you're all alone. No other Christians around that you know of. Nobody knows you. It's difficult to do the right thing. What do you give yourself permission to do when you're all alone? It takes discipline to do exercise when the coach is not there. For you see, no, no pain, no gain. Discipline is doing what you're supposed to do when no one is watching, when you're all alone. Peter thought he was all alone when he denied his master. There was something wrong with Peter. After three years of spending his time with the master, wow, you wouldn't have thought that of Peter. I thought Peter was strong. And yet, when they said, you're one of them, he said, no, I'm not. I don't even know the man. We must die to self. And only when we die to self will we be able to live for Christ. Only then will we be able to fill in the blank with Christ. But there's your adversary, Satan. He'll come over and whisper at you, hey, get off the cross. I can make things easy for you. I can give you whatever you want. I will give you pleasure. Don't listen to him. He's a liar. He's the father of lies. He wants you to run from your problem, your difficulties. He wants you to run from your marriage, from your family. He wants you to run. Don't do it. This brings us to our so what moment. We all have our cross to bear. We all do. It takes discipline. Discipline is what it takes to do the right thing when no one is around, when no one is watching. You often wonder why you act like a non-Christian. It's because you haven't died to your flesh completely. There's that little, little piece of flesh that wasn't nailed 
on the cross. You must do that. You carry your cross, but you haven't gone all the way up to Calvary. You must go up Calvary, for it is there that you die. What would happen if our conduct was exactly what God wanted? How would things be different? What would happen if we stood as one with our brothers and sisters to fight this battle that we're all in? What would happen in your life if we truly died to ourselves on our cross, on your cross? What would happen? Ladies and gentlemen, body of Christ, I think if we all died on the cross, our cross, I think we could change the world. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for speaking to us. I know it's not easy to have to take up our cross. It's not easy. It's difficult. And yet you have called us to that cross. We're depending on you, Lord. And so as we carry our cross, help us to offer a holy abandonment to you. Help us to fully die to our potential and our possibilities, our opinions. Help us to die to our way, to my will, to my desires that I might live out your will. Aligning my will to yours, that is what you want from us. Now give us the courage to remain on the cross of suffering and that you might be glorified through it. Thank you for your help. Strengthen us now to live differently, to live courageously in Christ's name. Amen and amen.